This is the current federal tax developments for the week of June the 21st, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, broadcasting this week from the very toasty Phoenix, Arizona. And we're going to take a look at a few things that went on during the week in the area of federal taxes. The first thing we're going to look at is a case that we had been waiting on for a while. Uh, it was the Supreme Court finally decided the status of the Affordable Care Act following the changes due to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Uh, I'm going to speak to it from the perspective of some people who are filing protective claims for refund, or even maybe they claim straight refund claims, based on the refund of taxes paid most generally and most significantly would have been for taxes that have been paid under the net investment income tax. We'll talk about why this case effectively got rid of that issue entirely and why those claims are not coming back paid anytime soon. So we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk you know, where we stand actually. Also, there are two stories as we go on to work on that both fly off of an issue that we'll discuss that came out of the report from the Taxpayers Advocates Office to Congress back last month uh, that dealt with the Major League backlog of processing for the service. And what we're going to talk about here is we'll talk about that May 1st backlog. And that May 1st backlog caused a few pieces of guidance to be issued this week, two pieces in particular, one of which was a note to small not-for-profits about you should not file a 5500EZ on paper, even though you may be allowed to, at least if you don't want major problems. Now, if major problems don't bother you, then you can go ahead and do your paper filing. But otherwise, you may find yourself fighting off a slew of failure-to-file notices that, I love the services terms, could be premature. Yeah, that's probably premature if they haven't just gotten around to processing it. They also made some significant changes to the offer and compromise program temporarily until the backlog gets taken care of. And the problem we're going to run into there is one of the conditions normally of accepting an offer is going to be that the taxpayer has remained current with later years and you can't get an offer, you know, if the IRS doesn't have the return filed as of yet. There is a problem that we're still sitting on a bunch of, or at least as of May 1st, a bunch of unprocessed returns from 2019 and 2020. And that makes it kind of difficult to meet the deadlines that are in the law for considering offers. And so we'll talk about what the service is going to do and why they're not going to do what they normally would do, which is kick back an offer if they go check the master file and they find no record of a filing for the last two years, it would normally be a kickback. So we're going to talk about what exactly they're doing. But let's talk about that case. And it's a case that we had a lot of discussion on. And I saw it on a lot of discussion boards uh, back when the original case came down in 2018, when a court in Texas ruled that due to the changes with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the Affordable Care Act had become retroactively unconstitutional. And for that reason, these people were saying that we could get a claim for refund for all of the net investment income tax that had been paid. Now, interestingly enough, my position from day one, and I was very open about this, I told clients my position and, you know, gave the clients the decision to make. 
Yes, there was a potential problem because obviously, you know, as years come by, if in fact the NII is unconstitutional, then when we came up to April 15th, right, of 2019, well, in that year, that meant that the 20, um, in this case, the 2015 returns we had filed, that would have had a net investment income tax, the statute for claiming a refund essentially would die because that return should have been filed, right? The original due date was April 15th of 2016, therefore April 15th, 2019. In theory, right, that was the last day to file a claim for refund. If, in fact, the Affordable Care Act was retroactively illegal back to 2015, then that was the date you had to file a claim for refund. Now, I noted a couple of things before I, you know, when I told clients about this. Yes, we understand this issue. And yes, some of them had heard about it. And I said, okay, here's how it goes. Um, bottom line, right? I happen to think, and by the way, the Fifth Circuit also made a ruling on this that came to a conclusion, I think, kind of telegraphed that this was not likely to be retroactive. Uh, but my take was, it says, I can't imagine the U.S. Supreme Court, regardless of makeup, understanding the nature of politics today and the nature of, you know, the partisanship and how we seem to keep swapping from control by one party of all three branches to control by the other. And we, you know, flip back and forth a couple of times over the recent decades that they would really want to open the Pandora's box of allowing the new Congress and new president, because we change president, we tend to change Congresses at the same time and give the party full control uh, at that point. So they have control of the presidency, the Senate, and the House, that they could blow up all of the work done by the prior uh, time we had this, which may have been four or eight years earlier, by simply making a retroactive change to a law that was clearly unconstitutional, then being able to have somebody challenge it, go to court, and voila, the entire thing's retroactively undone, and we wipe out whatever they did before. It seemed like that's not the sort of thing the Supreme Court would like to do. Secondly, when this court, when this case got to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, the Fifth Circuit also said that they didn't totally understand why the remedy for the supposed damage that had occurred was to wipe out the entire law. They said, we need to have a better explanation from you about why that is this remedy. And very pointedly, they said, which I thought was most interesting by the Fifth Circuit, was that we, we think the Congress, you have to consider the intent of, you know, for whether there was, a, whether, you know, they see the whole thing as linked, you know, and how it would go, you know, we need to consider the intent of the Congress that in 2017 passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that contained the provision that was the problem, rather than the Congress that passed the Affordable Care Act, you know, back in 2010. That, you know, this Congress, apparently, it had been the 2017 Congress that had, you know, supposedly enacted the unconstitutional provision. So let's do a quick review of where this came from. If you remember the original old case that we had, that the Supreme Court decided when we were discussing the validity of the debt investment income tax, or I should say the validity of the entire ACA, was a case of the National Federation of Independent Business versus Sibelius, the old Health and Human Services Secretary, which was a U.S. Supreme Court case in 2012. 
And in that decision, Justice Roberts had said that the individual mandate uh, was allowed. He said Congress really didn't have the right to mandate everybody have coverage, but they do have the right to tax. And as long as that tax was not so onerous that it amounted to a, you know, you know, let's say if it had been a $300,000 tax imposed on anybody who didn't have medical coverage, well, that would have simply been been saying it was illegal not to have coverage. That would have been a fine, an impermissible large fine. But he said because the penalty generally was significantly less than the cost of the coverage, that that was more of, of a tax. That and the tax was legitimate. Now that's how they stitched the whole thing together, and based on that, they said, "Okay, it's constitutional." Now, in 2017, you may remember, as part of the Affordable, as part of Affordable Care Act, I should say, as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, what Congress did was they set that penalty for failing to have health insurance. They took the penalty down to zero. That was a provision in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. The state of Texas, eventually along with, was it 21 other states, uh, plus they had two individual claimants, uh, said effectively that because of that change in the law, there was no longer a tax. It was a pure requirement to have health insurance, and that meant that it was unconstitutional. And because the entire ACA taken as a whole was what Congress intended, it was an all-or-nothing bill uh, that was intended by Congress, that it was wiped out. And somehow they decided that wipeout was retroactive. Now, you know, my own take on it, as I said, I didn't think they really wanted to do that. I said more likely what would happen is that it would be a narrow strike. And if they did strike the net investment income tax as being completely tied to this, that it likely wouldn't be struck until the first year that we actually paid a penalty or failed to pay a penalty if you didn't have health insurance. And that, as I recall, under the ACA, 2018, it was still required. You know, they didn't want to disrupt the markets at that point because insurance companies already written, you know, and set their underwriting, assuming that there would be a penalty there. So they set it for 2019. So I said, realistically, you know, even if the theory holds and they strike down the law, the reality is I don't see a real major likelihood that we're going to see the net investment income tax stricken down, stricken down until 2019. So I told clients, if you want us to file claims for refund, we will. Um, I will charge for the work. It's not a freebie uh, by any means because th- this is kind of hoping for something, you know, and I need to be paid to do hope is the way I look at it uh, under that standpoint. And, you know, and it may very well turn out to be nothing. And, you know, it's your choice. If you think it's going to work this way, that's fine. I will not make a bet on the Supreme Court. um, And I have to tell you that, you know, it might not happen. Uh, You know, your decision. Faced with that, most, in fact, every client I had decided to not do anything about it. And maybe consider if we got this far along, you know, when we get to, April 15th of 2023, and we'd be filing the 19 return, that then we might decide, you know, when the 19 return statute would begin to run out, if this was still not decided then, which seemed highly unlikely, then we might consider it at that point. Well, what happened in this case was all of those refunds, so we had lots of people out who filed these protective claims, 
And, you know, I, like I said, I thought it was kind of funny because most of what I read about early, you know, it's got discussed shortly after the case came down. And as I remember reading from a lot of the international firms, you know, they concluded that, yeah, it just wasn't very likely that this whole retroactive to day one thing was going to work. And so for that reason, you know, they really weren't worried about getting all their clients online. Well, what happened was, though, somehow this story resurfaced somewhere around March of 2019. And that caused this stampede of, oh, we can't. Oh, you know, we've got to. You've got to tell the clients. And you have to file claims on everybody and how horrible it is. You know, and why didn't everybody tell us about this? My answer was, do you read the paper? Uh, but that's okay. It's kind of my theory about that. You know, it's like it's known, right, that this was out there. It certainly wasn't a secret that it was a retroactive pull. And you would think, you remember, that the net investment income tax was part of the ACA. So that would be a key issue. Nevertheless, became a big topic. Lots of people screamed. Lots of people, some CPAs went out and filed claims for refunds on all clients that paid the net investment income tax or, or paid the uh, premium or the tax, the penalty for failing to file, which remember, because we're appealing that uh, prospectively, theoretically, retroactively fixed it, which also is kind of a mind bender in my mind. But still, that was the justification that they had to file those claims for refund. And I said, okay, that's fine. You know, but did you tell the clients that this is far from a sure thing? Well, no, 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 no. It's a sure thing because, you know, we're going to see the, the justices have been appointed. They're going to knock it down. I said, okay, whatever. Uh, you know, but I would still say that clients need to understand that this all depends ultimately on a Supreme Court decision. And, you know, it, it's up to them to make a decision in that realm. But we have the decision now. And it was an interesting decision. And they did what the Supreme Court often does when a Supreme Court really doesn't want to deal with something. So they try to find a way to, A, kind of leave the status quo where it is, doing so by not approving of the status quo, but doing so by essentially putting up roadblocks that will prevent anybody from challenging the issue at hand. Yes, you might say that's a little bit... Uh, underhanded i suppose you could look at it that way um so you know it's frustrating at times but the bottom line is in a court case you have to show that you have standing to bring the claim and the problem is to show standing at court generally a couple of things have to be done both of which the seven two opinion majority opinion seven to two the only two justices that did not go along with this um, was Justice Alito, Alito, right, and Justice Gorsuch. The other seven justices all went along with this decision and said, well, the problem is, first, that for the individual, they said, it's hard for us to see how you were damaged by the requirement you had to have insurance. And they're saying, but we had to have it. We'd violate the law. They said, it's a law with no enforcement provision. A law with no enforcement provision technically isn't a law. In fact, you might think for a second that's really your position here. You're saying, you know, the, the, this law with no provision, well, it really isn't a law. You know, there, there is no enforcement. That's why you're raising this case. But basically, your damage was solved. There is no damage because you're not required to buy insurance. You know, and, you know, a law that has, you know, if Congress says you're required to do something, but there's absolutely no penalty for not doing it. There, 
you know, there, there, there's no, it's, you know, there, there's not really a case here. There's no damage to you by that standpoint. So you don't have any right to claim. And then they said the states, they went to them too and said, well, you have even less right to claim. You know, the damages you're claiming were really in many ways the damages you tried to litigate back in the original case in 2012, the National Federation of Independent Business case. And they're saying, and that was already been decided, you know, that is old law. And so, you know, that's not, none of this was changed by the fact that the penalty went to zero. And that's the only reason we're back here and claiming that we have to revisit the 2012 decision is because we set the penalty to zero. Saying the penalty to zero did not change any of that. So the court held that you, in fact, had no right to bring the suit. Now, Justice Thomas did do a, you know, a concurring opinion. So he's part of the seven, but he wrote his own reasons. And he did say that he believed the result was correct here, that at trial the parties had not presented any reasons that would have been justifiable. But he said it was possible the states might find some justifications and arguable harm. And the state's claim was because they had to offer uh, care that was at least minimum essential coverage and that, you know, this th this law, therefore, enticed people in, etc. Uh, it's still got a little weird how it gets there. But, you know, but Justice Thomas said there might be. And, you know, if you raise that case, maybe then we could hear it. Now, the other two justices essentially said there is such harms to the state, and we think the case should be heard. Now, the, uh, the majority opinion, the main opinion, tells us right off they did not decide, they are not ruling on constitutionality of this thing, you know, or any other issue. They, so they aren't touching that. And that's pretty much a sign to you right away that the seven judges could not have agreed on answering those questions. But they could agree on this solution that got them out of the spotlight. So bottom line, what this means is because they did not rule on those underlying issues, uh, we don't have that. But the problem is it's hard to see how you could ever get them. If you read the opinion, it's very difficult to see how we would ever get them to rule on the underlying issues. So for practical matters, it appears that this case, that's the way I kind of read the decision, is at least this court with these nine justices have said, quit bugging us about this, right? Or seven of them at least have. And probably six, I'll, I'll be fair. I think six of them have made it very clear they really don't want to hear this. And if you brought it back, even if you went the route that Justice Thomas suggested you could go, and you know you might you might get his vote for you now, you might get the other two to say we could hear it, but the other six are going to say nope, we're not hearing the case. So you know the, the case there there is no standing, and we're going to overturn the standing issue. And I would expect if they did take one up in the future, be simply based on standing, because that would be the immediate thing come up as soon as somebody tried to go to court on it is that the, you know, the, basically the federal governments uh, would uh, come back and say, nope, we can't. Nope, you know what, they have no standing to sue. And that would then be what would be immediately appealed if a district court said they did. That would go up the line to the Court of Appeals. If they said, oh yeah, we think you do, that would also probably immediately go to the Supreme Court, at which point Supreme Court would probably say by at least a 6-3 vote that no, you don't, and they would shut the case down. So bottom line, 
The Supreme Court says we're done with this. If you want to make changes to the ACA, essentially do it via the Congress. Don't come to us. So that, that's at least how I read it. The practical issue at the end of the day, um, those claim for refunds, I think you should contact clients if they filed them. Tell them at this point it is highly unlikely, I would say basically certain, that their claims you know, are never going to be paid. It's highly likely they'll never see a, they won't see a payment from. It's very likely they will get a denial. Uh, and you know we're pretty much done with that. So at that point, understand where we go. Also means when we come up to next April 15th, don't go scrambling, running around, filing this, you know, which I know some people will do, going around trying to file this protective claim. I've seen people have no idea why they're doing it. This was the case you were doing it for. The case in question is California versus Texas, United States Supreme Court, case number 19-840, decided on June the 17th. And by the way, why California versus Texas? Because under the prior administration, they, you know, had said they wouldn't defend this position. Uh, you know, certain states obviously filed petitions to uphold the law and they were allowed to substitute as a defendant. So in this case, as a practical matter, if a new case came with the current administration, I would expect this to be the United States, you know, versus whoever, right, in this case. So it would be United States versus Texas rather than California versus Texas. It was just kind of the way it went. Okay, that done. Let's talk about a major problem we've got. This is a pra this is a very real, very practical problem we're running into today. The IRS National Taxpayer Advocate Aaron Aaron what is it Aaron Collins is I believe the name yes um, gave testimony to the Senate basically to the United States Senate Subcommittee on Financial Services and General Government on the Committee on Appropriations about where the IRS stood on processing returns. So she gave this testimony on May the 19th. And what she gave was, she said, well, here is the backlog the IRS is facing of unprocessed returns. And you probably have a good idea this is going on if you've paid any attention to your clients that have been telling you about they don't haven't gotten their refunds, uh, you know, they can't get anything. Uh, the IRS doesn't show a record of the return. All of those things, it probably wouldn't surprise you. Now, this is as of May 1st, 2021. Warning, there were going to be a whole bunch of returns filed by May 15th because, remember, the filing deadline was May 15th. So I don't suspect this improved by the end of May. You know, we may be seeing changes now. Things may get better over the summer, but I think it's going to be most of this year before they finally get back to being where they should be. The IRS said they have, as of May 1st of 2021, they were sitting on a million paper 1040s from 2020 that they had not even begun processing, right? They were awaiting processing. And they were sitting on 4.9 million 2021 Form 1040s that were paper filed. Since the vast majority of returns are electronically filed these days, that 4.9 million makes up a huge percentage of the paper filed 1040s. Which means your clients who paper filed and want to know why they've not seen their refund, I think you've got the answer about why they haven't seen it. And you've got the reason to tell them they won't see it for quite a while. 
Now, they're also sitting on a million five hundred thousand business returns for calendar year 2020 that were paper filed and 3.7 million business returns for 2021, as well as a million eight returns that they call not specified for what type they are. So bottom line, they are sitting on among all return types for 2021, 2020, they're sitting on 12.9 million paper returns that simply haven't even started processing. So if your clients filed on paper, we already know that's going to be a problem. As well, sometimes when they process a return, they see something, the computer identifies something unusual. They think they need somebody to go look at that, you know, make some sense. It may be a potential fraud, etc. So these are returns that processing suspended awaiting some IRS personnel to take some action on the return. Traditionally, most of these returns were handled fairly quickly because it just somebody could glance quickly, see, oh, what the computer saw here is really no problem, and then just pass it forward. But those stacked up while offices are closed. There are 13.2 million individual returns of that type right now. And if your clients filed an amended return, there are 1.9 million of those that also have not been processed as of May 1st. So the IRS was, and that's individual returns, the IRS was sitting on 21 million returns that either they hadn't even begun processing on, if they were paper, or that the processing's been suspended after it was initially started. That'd be electronic returns and some paper returns that got further along in the process. So that's why your clients aren't seeing their refunds, right? That's why people get stuck. If you're in either one of those categories, you filed on paper or you got in that, you know, you know, pulled for further work, uh, those returns are going to take quite a while to get through. They're majorly backlogged. Business returns, we looked at 7.6 million returns in that status. So your client's a business return, there's some issue. Probably a good explanation there. And again, especially if the business filed on paper, uh, we got some issues here. Again, 1.8 million not specified. So overall, they're saying there are 30,500,000 returns as of May 1st that were sitting there in some stage of either not processed at all at this point, or they're on a hold that they still haven't come out of. So that's become a major problem for the IRS. And that's caused the IRS to do a couple of things. First, Let's talk about a notice that came out in the exempt organization's update on the IRS webpage in the June 16th edition of that. That's, that's their page that gives exempt org certain additional information. And what this told us was the IRS on their notes that they are having delays in processing paper returns, including the form 990EZ, you know, the short form of an organization exempt from income tax, and Form 8868, the application of extension of time to file an exempt organization return. Now, either of these returns can be filed electronically, but if you're a small, a small not-for-profit, you at least temporarily, they did plug this hole a bit, but for now, you could still have filed on paper. Now, the IRS is strongly advising you do not, for whatever reason, file these forms on paper. The fact that you can do it doesn't mean it is a smart move to do it that way, at least if your client does not want problems. Okay, the IRS tells us in this case that if you paper file, uh, 
uh, that may result in getting a failure to file notice on your 990EZ. The computer will eventually get around to kicking those out that you failed to file your tax return on time, your information return on time for the exempt org and start proposing penalties. Now, your client then is going to say it's wrong, etc. I filed it. I know I did, etc., etc. That's all well and good, but it doesn't mean the computer is going to calm down quickly. It doesn't mean we're going to be able to get control. If you tried to call the IRS recently, yeah, you know, so try if you're going to get through on phone, if you mail something in, well, that's going in the same stack as a 990EZ. They haven't got around to processing it. So I the only reason I throw something in on paper, to be honest, is to do it with certified mail dates. So I have documentation of when I did something. And then at least, you know, down the line, we can get things reversed because it turns out the IRS shouldn't have acted. And so we can pull that off. We, it wasn't that we didn't respond timely. It's that the IRS never got around to opening the mail, which is a real, real, real possibility in today's world. They also said you may get a delayed notice of acceptance of the extension, which also then can eventually lead to a failure to file or even you know, let's say you do electronically file the 990EZ. Oh, you had no extension. Well, yes, we did. But it wasn't processed yet. So you can see how this goes wrong. Now, to be totally honest at this point in time, I would extend this to cover every return type you have. Because honestly, right now with the IRS, just nothing, nothing, nothing on paper is going through at any speeds. We told you about the numbers already. You know, it's just not going to happen. If your client insists on filing on paper, I know some CPAs who are simply saying right now a client that insists on filing on paper is a client they fire, right? They don't need the headache, right? If you're going to do it on paper and some, you know, or they, you know, if you're going to do it on paper and you're going to go ahead and do it, if there's, even if you're not forced to do it, because I do realize there are times when you have no option, Right. You know, something happens, the client's unable to file on paper, on file electronically, so you have to file paper. But if you do decide to do returns for people that insist on paper returns, then I think you've got to be very, very clear that A, up front, tell them in writing that this is likely to be a problem and slow processing. That slow processing could lead to notices about failing to file the return. That could lead to penalty notices and other actions by the service. Uh, it could be very difficult to get those actions stopped because it's very difficult to contact the service at this point, right? And in any event, the work which they would want us to do to try to take care of those problems is going to be very, very time-consuming. And there is no way I can predict how long it will take. Therefore, I have no option but to charge for it by the hour. You know, don't otherwise charge hourly. Because, you know, you're opening up Pandora's box. You know, it's, it's not one of those things that I, you know, you know, you don't go down to a computer store and buy a computer that they have no idea what you're going to be getting and how it's going to work or how long it'll take. You know, you're, you're not going to be able to spec up, you know, some wild-eyed idea. They haven't even started the engineering on and get a price to pay for it that's going to be the same as buying that off-the-shelf machine. And that's kind of what we're getting here. This is one of those things where there's nothing, no rhyme or reason. It may be totally wrong, and it could even end up requiring you getting attorneys involved and having to go to court if this really goes badly, and we have to get things unwound. 
So as I said, if you paper file, you do it at your own risk. And clients need to understand that at this point. Should it work that way? No. But we don't live in the should it work that way world. We, in, we live in a world of how it does work. Now, it does work. Yes, you'll probably win in the end. Right? But you're going to have a very stressful time period getting there and may have some huge problems before we get there. Now, the other thing that came up was the IRS issued a memorandum, Small Business Self-Employed Division, Memorandum 06-0621-0029, that was issued on June the 1st of 2021. This deals with a little different problem with that backlog. What if you are trying to process inside the IRS an offer in compromise? Well, one of the issues that comes up when you do an offer in compromise, for instance, you got a client who wants to file an offer. Quite often, you know, they want to file an offer because, you know, they owe taxes maybe from 2019 or, you know, 2019, the 20, or sorry, 2018. But they also might have owed then in 19 and 20. So they're trying to do an offer to take all of those together and run with them. Okay. But even if they're just trying to get that offer taken care of on 18, you still got the problem that the service is not going to go ahead with an offer until they have evidence that the other year has been taken care of or have been rolled into the offer. So the problem we have right now is very simple. Since the IRS is not able to finish up returns, the IRS, when the agent goes who's working the OIC, when that party goes to try to you know, double check and make sure the client did file and has no unpaid balance on the 19 or 20 return, they're not going to find information about it in the file. If it's one of those 20 million, one of those 30 million, 500,000 returns that is stuck in the, you know, not yet even begun processing or in the hold status for processing, those will not show up in the system. So what the IRS has done now is they made a couple of changes. First, traditionally, they would be if they went back, they checked, and they showed unfiled returns for 19 and 20, they would treat the offer as unprocessable at this time and kick it back, right? Uh, they are not to do that anymore, right? They've been told now that those applications um, are to be held and not moved on until the IRS gets all backlogged returns uh, processed. So if all backlog returns have not been processed, they're not to kick them back because they can't know that the returns for that are the problem here that they haven't been able to confirm and filed yet aren't stuck in that backlog. So until those are taken care of, they aren't supposed to do that, right? Uh, again, they're not supposed to return those things, right? We'll do that. Now, they also said if, in fact, I know the mandatory acceptance date for offers have to go up and down is 90 days. If that day is approaching and the balance due has not, not been posted, you've got to advise the taxpayer that you could recommend acceptance, they said, but only for the 18 return. Or, right, or the taxpayer could withdraw the offer, wait until those get posted, and hope like MAD 21, we now aren't trying to file 21 return which then gets in this mix, you know, wait for them to get processed and go there, but they cannot do the entirety 
of it. So they will have to either, you know, all they're going to be able to offer them is we will approve it for the years that we've gotten processed so far, but we're going to leave the others out of the mix, which is a real problem because then it looks like you're going back to get an offer after you already got one. You fell behind again. That's bad. Or you can withdraw your initial offer request, wait till those get processed, cross your fingers, you don't owe money on 21, and, you know, go from there. Uh, one of those things, right? And again, they also tell them as long as they, you know, you can ask them to provide evidence of the timely filing. But as long as there's some evidence, you know, you allow those weeks to go on. So basically what's going to happen here is that the IRS is, you know, going to be working on these issues and ignoring temporarily the guidance in the Internal Revenue Manual about what to do, the standard 10 to 20 week processing frame, time frames, etc., until such time as this backlog gets taken care of. As I said, my guess is it's going to take quite a while to get this taken care of. The problem is I don't know that they were greatly overstaffed on processing. It didn't seem like they got everything done the minute they touched it. In the past, it would take some time. So unless they had a huge, huge amount of excess capacity, which I doubt's there, I think it's going to take quite a while to get this backlog out of the system, regardless of the status of COVID, right? Doesn't matter if everything's great, they're back in the service centers, they're not having to socially distance anymore. It's still going to take a while to get this done. So just, just be careful here. And as I said, be sure to advise your clients about these problems. If they get notices, it's going to be more of an issue. Secondly, you know, avoid paper where we can. Avoid doing things on paper. You know, tell them if they insist on going that route and it causes problems, they need to pay for the work to get it done. Or just simply take a position, as I said, I know CPAs have, of saying if you're going to insist on filing on paper when there's electronic options available, we're going to have to say tough luck. Uh, you'll need to find another CPA to do the return. You know, I got better things to do than sit on hold for eight hours, you know, because you want to know where your refund is. Uh, and by the way, client who filed on paper this year, Cole, says, go check my refund. You got to go get it. There is nothing you can do. Period. It's done. You know, as I said, they made the mistake when they decided to do the paper filing. That's the bottom line. You can whine all you want about it being unfair. I'll accept it's unfair. I'll also accept that it was a known problem. And, you know, you went out there and you decided to do this anyway. So, you know, it's kind of like going out, you know, when you know it's kind of icy out there and maybe technically they aren't requiring change yet or they're not doing those, you know, other requirements. They didn't say anybody had to stay home, but you know it's icy. It's like, well, you know, if the car gets, you know, kind of, you know, stuck in a ditch somewhere, well, that was kind of one of the risks you took by doing that at that point. Just understand how it goes. Don't think we're losing many cars into the ditch on ice in Phoenix though, right now. I think we're good on that one. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of June the 21st, 2021. Again, you know, this is brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and your state society of CPAs. We are beginning to do uh, the continuing education courses. I finished up a series for Arizona this past week. You know, I will be doing one next month, as I recall, for the state of Hawaii on the employee retention tax credit. Should be fun. 
uh, doing a few of those. I will actually be doing live courses, at least as scheduled for now, with a live audience beginning in August here in Phoenix. So that those are ones I've got scheduled. So we've got some of that going. We've got courses scheduled that are going to be broadcast as they have before, you know, as we did pre-pandemic in some states. And, uh, you know, as we did during the pandemic in basically every state, you know, we've got that. And by the way, for those who were not in a place they were doing the broadcast before, I will say Arizona has offered the uh, courses via online or in the room for courses out of their Phoenix office, which is where the vast majority of, of courses are held. And we've seen audiences start to move every year more and more toward being remote, where now it is not at all unusual to have a course where over half of the participants are. It wasn't unusual. I should say, well, now, of course, it isn't unusual at all. But even pre-2020, it was not unusual to have over half the people not in the room for the course. So, you know, Again, we'll have to see how all that goes and what impact the pandemic might have on people's preferences. If, in fact, we were going that route, my evidence is from looking at what I saw lecturing all these years in Arizona is that it's moving that way. You know, this might accelerate it. So we'll just have to see how things go. In any event, I'm definitely planning on doing live sessions, at least here in Phoenix uh, this year. Uh, only like, you know, a few miles away from their offices. So it really is not that big a deal if I do the session from there or from my office. If we're talking about, you know, somewhere like, you know, where I did like last year from the U.S. Virgin Islands. Yeah, that that's a long trip. You know, if, if it turns out that most people are going to sit in their offices, probably makes more sense to do that one from Phoenix. So we get those ideas. But in any event, check that out. Go there. Also check for me on the Connect sites. I do take a look at the Connect uh, postings. For the Arizona, New Jersey, uh, Minnesota, Illinois societies, you know, just keep your eyes there and uh, keep track. We'll keep an eye on what's going on this week. We'll talk to you next week and tell you about what may have gone on here in the area of current federal tax developments.